Hey, everybody, this is The Real Estate of Life with Kevin Riles. This week, we talk multifamily financing with Wayland Themer from Citibank. We talk about all the qualifications you need to get uh, finance with for apartments and really just commercial loans in general. So, DJ, hit that music, please. Support for this program comes from the Digital Broadcasting Network, presenting podcasts and web series from everyday people who have an extraordinary passion to make the world a better place. Hey everybody, this is The Real Estate of Life with Kevin Rouse and friends. And this week we're gonna talk about multi-family financing with the man. With the man, with the plan, and the financing, and the money. His name is Waylon Themer. He works for Citibank. Uh, and I'm just so glad he agreed to do this. We're doing this virtually again. As you can see, I dressed up really nice for Waylon, uh, even though he didn't go to UT. He went to University of North Texas, but it's okay. Texas is in it somewhere. Uh, Waylon, welcome to the to the Real Estate Life. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Hey, I, I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to have Waylon on um, to talk about multifamily uh, financing because he and I just did um, um, some deals together, and I thought it was important for people to know. I know I've talked about it in previous um podcast before, but I talk about it from a broker's perspective. And so I wanted to kind of talk about um, uh, multifamily financing with somebody that actually puts packages together and goes to loan committee and, and he begs for his clients and he, he gets deals done. Uh, at least that's what I think happened. I, I'm, I'm not questioning. But before we uh, start that, give everybody kind of your background, uh, Waylon, kind of, you know, how long you've been doing this uh, uh, and things of that nature. Sure. Yeah, I've, I've um, been in this for uh, 12 years now, all with uh, Citibank Texas, uh, started as an underwriter and mm -hmm. uh, quickly moved into uh, a lending position. Uh, during the downturn, I handled foreclosure work for our bank and workout scenarios. So I got a pretty good dose of, of uh, kind of what not to do in uh, real estate financing. And then in, uh, uh, at the end of 2012 and going into 2013, um, I flipped my hat back over to the production side and started working with new clients and, and doing new deals. So uh, I've been back on the on the saddle doing new deals since uh, the beginning of 2013. Gotcha, gotcha. And so uh, I actually met Waylon through a client of mine um, who uh, did uh, a uh, has done a couple of deals with him um, that I sold my clients. So I think Waylon has actually financed two of the deals with that particular client. Uh, that uh, uh, that I've sold to that client. And so, well, and as we get started, I guess what I would ask for you is when someone contacts you and say, hey, I want to buy a multifamily property, um, you know, what are the things that you typically tell them in general, not specifics yet, but in general, as far as financial qualifications and things of that nature uh, that they need to, to, to purchase when you're having those initial conversations? Yeah, sure. I mean, in general, I mean, the conversation usually starts with kind of their uh, entry into multifamily. If, if they've done it before, what their background is, that's the bankers always want to know what the experience level of, of the borrower is. First and foremost, um, if it is their first deal, what led them to multifamily, what what got them to that point? Um, and then uh, once you get past that, you start talking about the deal and, and what drew them to that specific deal. If it's uh, the yield they're getting on it or the upside on, on the uh, value add and, and what have you there. Um, do you want to talk about qualifications? Yeah, yeah. But you just said something I want to ask you a question about. 
because I get it a lot as well. A lot of times I have an engineer or a doctor or someone just been, you know, financially successful and they want to get into multifamily investing, but they don't have the experience in buying a 20 unit or 25 unit or 30 unit or whatever the case may be. And so um, you mentioned something good there as far as the experience is concerned. What I tell them is that if you go to a, a bank, they're going to want that experience to lend. So you may have to bring that experience along either with a more experienced partner or with a management company. And so I just want you to speak to that before we get to the actual qualification. Yeah, yeah. And you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, you uh, obviously are experienced yourself in working with lenders and, and you know what we like to see. So, um, you know, what a lender is always trying to do is, is look for perceived risks in the uh, loan uh, with the property or with the borrower and, and mitigate those risks. So if you have an inexperienced borrower, uh, typically the ways to mitigate, mitigate that risk are for him or her to bring on an experienced partner or to bring on an experienced management company. And obviously that's always coupled with their uh, financial backing as well. You know, if, if someone has a very strong balance sheet, uh, net worth and liquidity standpoint, obviously they can cure a lot of mistakes with that balance sheet. Um, and so that, you know, that gives them some runway too that, that we look at. So as you talk about specific qualifications, what do you look for uh, in in your clients that are purchasing? And I, we're talking about multifamily, but this really, I think, is generally commercial loans in general. I don't sure. think there's a huge amount of difference as to what you guys look for. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, typically commercial loan, uh, multifamily included, uh, you're looking at a minimum down payment of 25%. Wait a minute, uh, not 100% financing? What a, <laughs> let's end the podcast now. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, 25% down payment. And, and a lot of times, uh, you know, people will say, okay, I've got 25% down payment uh, to put toward the deal. But what the banker is really looking for is for you to have liquidity of closer to 35% because mm. you want to see a 25% down payment. We also want to see that you've got some cash room reserves a cushion just in case uh, operations don't go quite as well or or there's some unforeseen for, uh, circumstances. So, you know, if you're sitting on a, a $250,000 and you're looking at that million dollar deal, mm -hmm. um, that might not be quite enough liquidity, even though you technically have enough for that down payment. The, um, real quick on the liquidity, Samuel. So let's use that as an example. A million dollar deal, I got 250000 I can put into a deal. The versions of liquidity, I've had people say, well, hey, you know, I don't have, quote unquote, cash, but I have, I own five other properties, you know, outright or whatever the case may be. Is that a mitigating factor or because those properties are not liquid, you don't miss? Yeah, I mean, it's really liquidity, but if they do truly have uh, free and clear properties or other access to liquidity, say they have a line of credit against those properties, mm -hmm. or sometimes we can set them up with a loan against those properties so they have access to that liquidity. It's all about the access to liquidity that they have. So um, we typically are talking about true liquidity, cash, stocks that they can access in uh, a day or, or so. Mm -hmm. um, if they don't have that, I have been able to tap into some equity and other properties in order to provide that liquidity for them to a certain extent. Gotcha. So 25% down and what else, what else, uh, what other type of qualifications? 
Yeah. So uh, on on the personal side, you know, we we like to see a minimum net worth that's equal to the equal to or greater greater than the loan amount. So um, you know, if they're a million dollar deal, want to see at least a million dollar net worth um, going into that deal. Um, uh, and then um, we also, depending on what the deal is, we we typically like to see that they have outside income that kind of satisfies all their personal living so that they're not really having to live on this deal, that this deal is going to sustain itself. There's going to be cushion for any kind of operational downfalls or any any uh, kind of debt service payments that need to occur, but you're not making your house and car payment off the deal. Uh, you're, you're able to do that through outside sources. Um, of course, you can grow to a point where your real estate portfolio is your outside source of income, but uh, we, we never want to see that your first real estate deal is going to be what you count on for your for your living expenses. Gotcha. So um, to that point, and for those that are not familiar, debt service ratio uh, is uh, for for those that bought a house. That's your debt to income ratio, just stated as a as a commercial term. So um, do you do, do you or have you ever counted someone's outside income, especially high income individuals? as a part of their debt service, or do you only look at if, what the property is producing and can it cover? Well, uh, to answer that question, we always look at both. So okay. we, we call it the global cash flow. So we look at the outside income and the property. And, um, you know, that's how we get comfortable doing bridge loans. Something we specialize in is a bridge loan where a property does not currently cash flow. It needs significant uh, uh, construction, make ready, it may be 50% occupied and you say, well, how can you lend on that? It's not going to, it's not going to service the debt. Well, that's where you look at the global cash flow. We look at the outside income of the, of the guarantor to, uh, to bridge that gap. Uh, we do always want to see that at the end of the day, uh, whether that's a year down the road or two years down the road, that that property can sustain itself. Um, but we, we, we count on that guarantor for any kind of interim cash flow. Uh, difficulty um, you know if they're if they're buying something that's simply not ever going to cash flow it's it's probably not something of interest to us we, we want to see that it's going to cash flow at the end of the day and, and typically that's something they want to see too well let me ask you this so um, comparative to and I may well I'm sure you can compare because I'm sure you won deals and, and lost deals to other banks where would you say you guys are just in general as far as uh, your um, underwriting, as far as conservative versus more liberal or things of that nature. Are you somewhere in the middle? Are you relatively conservative? Are you relatively liberal? Where would you say? Where would you put yourself on that on that spectrum? Well, you'll uh, you'll never hear a banker or a bank say that they're the aggressive one. <laughs> I've, never, I've never talked to a bank and they say, oh, yeah, we're aggressive. We're just making these loans that no one else will make. I mean, right. no, no banker is going to say that. And there is a spectrum. So, um, you know, there's there's the large banks of the world, say, say the Chase Bank mm -hmm. or the Wells Fargo or the CITI. I'm, I'm at CITY, which is mm -hmm. uh, I always have to explain very, it, by the way, when very I'm small yeah. uh, <laughs> the CITI, where they would say, well, no, we, we wouldn't make a loan on a on a 1970s multifamily, no matter who you are, what it is. They say, oh, that's too risky. Um, and then um, you follow that spectrum down and where we fit in, we're a community bank. We're, we're a 20 location bank in Texas. And and 
the way that community banks are are competitive is we work um, in these spaces that maybe those big banks don't want to work in. And so compared to the big banks, uh, you know, we would be considered aggressive uh, in, by comparison to them. Um, you know, in, in the scale of, of community banks, I would say we're right in the middle that that uh, every bank has certain features of loans that they're more aggressive on just because maybe they have some personal experience with it or, or they have had success with that in the past. And that's where I, I think where we're most competitive are on these uh, value add deals that, that that's something that I've personally done a lot of uh, at the bank. Our bank's done a lot of it. And we've had a lot of success with guys that are, that are taking on properties that, that need a lot of work. I mean, we, we just approved in committee a, a property that the uh, bottom floor uh, flooded. So the, the property was only 50% occupied. The whole bottom floor was vacant. But we were able to see, hey, the top is 100% occupied, even though the property is 50%. We've got a guy that knows how to do the construction, that knows how to run the property. Let, let's take it on. And I would say there's a lot of banks that just would have said absolutely not from the get-go. Yeah. So that's my experience. Uh, and it's not necessarily commercial for Citibank. This is for global. But my experience with y'all is that you will do um, multifamily is not something that you guys are scared of and, and definitely not multifamily that's either older c-class or you know needs work uh and in fact um um i guess i could ask you this question on deals like that um how do you typically structure those those construction costs uh you know within a deal uh, I, I don't you know just as an example that particular deal flooded the bottom floor so he has to do some construction i don't know if he's going to pay for it out of pocket or he put that in the terms of the loan but i know you and i did a deal very similar to that um, uh, as well, where there was some construction that needed to happen to kind of bring that property up. So how do you typically structure those deals? Sure. Um, yeah, so the typical structure is we'll loan up to 75% of the total cost. And that would be the acquisition of the property plus the construction budget. And um, what what will happen, the, the mechanics of that will be the at closing, the borrower will put in all their equity of 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 the project. So um, just to, to use numbers, um, let, let's say you have a million five purchase and it needs $500,000 in repairs. It needs extensive repairs. So you've got a $2 million project. So the, the 25% that the borrower will have to put in, which is 500,000, that'll go in when we close. And we'll basically hold back uh, as future advances on the loan, just like a construction loan for, for any property that $500,000 will release that money to the borrower as he completes those repairs. So he'll go and, and uh, uh, do the, the first set of repairs that maybe $25,000, $30,000. He'll request for a draw. We'll send out an inspector and they'll we'll, uh, fund that $30,000 to him and he'll continue the project until he's done with it. Yeah, and so, um, um, and I'm just gonna ask you this, but not ask for a question yet. Uh, you mentioned that you were in the, so I used to, I got my claim to fame is I used to sell uh, foreclosures, um, residential foreclosures uh, for five years in Houston, had a contract to do so. Uh, now I, I work for four bankruptcy trustees where I sell properties that uh, are companies that have filed uh, bankruptcy. Uh, and so you were in the workout department. So I'm going to ask you this now, then ask you to answer later. I would be interested to hear some of the 
more interesting general stories of, of where you see people make mistakes having worked in foreclosures and in, in, uh, in the workout department at the, <laughs> at the bank, uh, because I'm sure that gives you a different perspective on how to look at a deal. Uh, now, yeah. before, yeah, before you answer that, um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, what are you seeing right now as far as um, the market in terms of lending? Uh, I, I noticed in obviously 06, 07, 08, you know, banks were tight, you know, like, you know, are you, you have to put down hundred percent and they might give you a dollar, you know, I'm, I'm being funny. <laughs> like, like it was that tight, you know, banks were really yeah. tight. And so the economy's doing, been doing relatively well. To me, it slowed down a little bit, uh, at least uh, in, in my little world. Uh, as it pertains to just uh, deal flow. Um, so what are you seeing uh, out there as far as underwriting or folks getting a, are kind of staying stable or is it kind of tightened up a little bit or there's kind of status quo from last year? Yeah, um, I would say it's more or less status quo, mm -hmm. uh, but one of the dynamics that has occurred is, is with uh, the market shifting um, to, to where there's probably more buyers than there are deals. Overall. Way more. I, I can attest to that. There's way more buyers than deals. So, so um, the way the lending has has changed is that, um, say back in '13, um, you could find a deal, and, and a lot of times you could find a deal that's that's knocking on a 10 cap. I mean, it's it's up there 9.5, 10 cap, and so um, there was no cash flow issue. You know, the lender would pick up a deal. And you're going to put 25% down, man, the cash flow is going to be great. Your debt service coverage ratio will probably be somewhere close to 1.6 mm -hmm. when our minimum requirement is 1.25. So what has changed now is that cap rates have compressed to a point where uh, for some of your nicer deals, if they're trading somewhere at the seven or below cap range, there's simply not enough cash flow there to service the debt on a on a typical bank loan with only 25% down. Sometimes it needs 30% down. Sometimes it needs 35% down just to generate enough cash flow uh, to make the bank uh, comfortable that you're always going to be able to make that payment. So the the loan to value, you you might say, oh, the banks become more conservative. Uh, it's really we we still have the same requirements. Mm -hmm. It's just the deals have forced us to become more conservative. And I think it's one of those lessons learned that you can't just look at value. You can't just look at cash flow. You got to look at both in order to um, be safe in a deal. Do you feel because of that the that the um, market is a little bubblish? Uh, um, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah. I, I feel that sometimes, but. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely no economics. Uh, right. No, look, if we, if we both knew the answer to that, we'd both be doing this from Tahiti somewhere. <laughs> right but, but so you have to look at much more than just history. You can't say, oh, because this is a seven cap and it used to be a 10 cap, it's overvalued. You're really looking at uh, what's going on in the global marketplace, what alternative investments are out there, what kind of liquidity is in the global marketplace mm -hmm. to really determine if it is uh, bubblish. And, and that's a better question for the uh, Mark Dotsers of the world <laughs> and the Ted Joneses of the world. Those are the economists that that can can tell you. And I recently listened to Mark Dotser um, and he does not think it's bubblish. He, he thinks that 
uh, workforce housing, DNC multifamily is, is one of the best investments there is. There's, there's a declining supply of it. It's something that's of ultra need and becoming more of need as time goes on. So he thinks it's more of a normalizing of what that stuff's really worth. Now, I, I agree. You know, I always tell people, regardless of the market, B and especially C um, is a good investment. The reason I say that is because when the economy is good, people move up a rung as far as renting is concerned. So the C's go to B's and the B's go to A's and the A's stay where they are. When the economy is bad, everybody moves down a rung. But C is right in the middle. So, you, you know, even though you might have to discount rents a little bit in a, in a tight market for a C, you never... You, as long as you manage right and, and manage your rental uh, rental rates right, you'll never, you should never be in a situation where you're struggling for occupancy. Um, that's right. Yeah, so that's a safer uh, safer investment. And, and I believe, and I'm not an economist, I just play one on, on this podcast, but I believe that the development of, I know it's technically A because it's new, but the development of basic, safe, clean, B housing, multifamily housing is an area of uh, great opportunity for those that have the liquidity and, and, uh, to be able to, to, to develop that. Um, sure. Yeah, uh, no, not the sexy A stuff, uh, but yeah. just, hey, you know, a little kiss of granite here, but really it's just a two bedroom, one bath, you know, a nice place to stay. Um, with that being said, how do you treat, I get this question all the time, how do you treat partnerships? Um, as far as, you know, uh, three or four partners or two partners, when they want to purchase something from a, from an income, how you look at that globally standpoint, what, what do you, what does the bank uh, require? Who has to sign the note? Who doesn't have to sign the note? Things of that nature. Sure. I mean, um, everything in life is up for negotiation, but I'll tell you how we do it. Uh, 95% of the time, sure. if there's a partnership. Uh, we require uh, every partner that owns 20% or more of that uh, entity to sign as a as a personal guarantor. We look at every every one of them. We look at their balance sheet, their uh, income, you know, tax returns, and their background, so credit and background. And we like to see that um, all those partners are solvent and uh, and are in a, in a position to take on the partnership. Um, you know, sometimes you would say, well, if there's, if there's one guy who's, who's well off enough to do it on his own, he just so happens to have partners, then why do you care about the other partners? And, and that is a, a good argument, but, um, there is partnership risk. And this is something I saw during the downturn where, uh, you can have partnership disputes. And if you have one partner who is very well off and is not as affected by a downturn and you have to other partners that are, and it comes time for capital calls. Well, all, all, even though one partner may have a million dollars and they're needing to have a hundred thousand injected into the partnership, well, the million dollar guy wants everyone to put in their fair share. And so it creates a dispute where um, it could lead to foreclosure just because um, the other, other partners can't come up with their share of, of what they need to do. It's really unfortunate, but it does happen. Um, for the most part, though, if you if we do have a well-off partner and he's bringing on some other partners, we we give much more credence to having that that well-off partner. We'd rather see um, a partnership that has at least one uh, a high net worth partner, and then maybe some other guys that are getting their start, 
as opposed to a partnership that's full of guys getting their start and they're all just kind of, um, you know, barely hitting the, the benchmarks we're looking for. So, and I was just about to ask you, how do you treat unequal partners? And so you just, you just, uh, <laughs> you just explain that because a lot of times that is the case where you have a really strong, you know, high net worth individual, and then you have someone either getting their start or just not as strong uh, as far yeah. as uh, that. Uh, and but they're both signing the the, uh, the deal. So for those for those limited partners that are less than twenty percent, do you gather any information about them at all, other than you know the LLC paperwork, or uh, do you gather any financial information about them? Uh, typically not. Um, they're if they're going to be signers on the account. Um, you know, there, there are some know your customer, uh, laws, banking laws. Mm-hmm. We kind of have to know who we're dealing with. Um, uh, but beyond that, if they're, if they're not signing as a guarantor, we typically don't get any financial information from them. Um, it's just, we, we just don't need it. Um, the, the times where that may not be the case is that there's a lot of them, you know, let's say a large syndication. And there are, uh, you know, 20 partners that, that each own a small percentage. Um, you know, we might want to see information on one or two of those just to kind of know who we're dealing with. Gotcha. So um, going back to that question about, you know, you worked in the workouts department. Um, uh, are there any, any, any stories or anything that you learned, um, you know, that would help people out there that are listening? you know, of what to do or what not to do, or just, you know, some craziness, like don't ever do this or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the don't ever do this scenarios. I mean, uh, other than lie and, and commit fraud. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously don't, don't commit fraud. I mean, it's, um, you know, a lot of it was just, uh, I mean, there was a lot of, of lying and fraud involved with those workout scenarios, and that's why they got to that point. And a lot of times it, it was guys that weren't treating their contractors correctly or or a lot of times those guys uh, find themselves working with contractors who are also dishonest. You know, dishonesty kind of breeds dishonesty. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so there were a lot of contractor disputes where contractors weren't getting paid or uh, – stuff wasn't being constructed correctly um guys getting into um projects um and this goes back to the cash flow and value um metrics that i that i were that i was talking about where you know some people were building things and saying oh it doesn't matter if it cash flows i'm going to be able to sell this for a 15 percent, 20 percent profit when i'm done with it or i'm going to be able to refinance it and in that 18 month time frame, once they were done with it, that market wasn't there. And, and guess what? You can't um, rent out a $400,000 condo for enough to pay the debt. So I still think that's happening on the townhome, at least here yeah. in the market. Uh, that, that market is sucking wind right now from, from, from my vantage point. Yeah. So it's, uh, uh, I think having more, multiple extra strategies is key. There's, there's some property types that, you know, you're building uh, spec houses or, or spec townhomes, you're not going to have multiple exit strategies. And I think what you have to do in those scenarios is just watch your leverage and 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 make sure you're not putting so many on the ground that it, if you're if you see a little downturn, you're able to exit those. Um, and even if you take a little loss, you're able to exit them, get some of your money back and, and 
live to fight another day. You know, if you if you get to a point where you have uh, $10 million in product on the ground and, and you only have a couple hundred thousand dollars to your name, you're, you only have one way out and that's that's bankruptcy. I mean, it's it's just not not going to be uh, easy to work out of those deals if you if you get to a point where the market's adjusted 10 or 15 percent. So um, real quick, even though this is multifamily call, are you seeing we have compressed cap rates on the multifamily side? Are you seeing I have clients that are looking for yield right now, so they're coming to me for multifamily, but we're looking at you know uh, retail and industrial because those cap rates seem to be uh, a little bit quote unquote better, even though they're a tad bit riskier because you're you're more tied to the economy. So in your lending, are you seeing that as well that people are looking for? Uh, um, those other markets because the cap rates are a little bit better. Uh, you said other markets? Like uh, other, the, other product types. Product. Oh, product types? Yeah, yeah you know, um, I do see it. It's, uh, um, I see more people um, going to other geographic markets looking mm -hmm. for yield. And, and, you know, you might, there's some risk there that maybe they're not recognizing that obviously there's, because you're, by the way, people, he, he sits, he does deals in, all across Texas, but he sits in Dallas. So, yeah. yeah. So obviously thousands and thousands of people are moving to Texas to, uh, but they're coming to Houston and Dallas and Austin, the major metros and, and some of the tertiary markets, uh, you know, aren't, don't have that dynamic. There, there are still markets in Texas that are shrinking in population. And you say, oh, I can go to this town in West Texas and buy this property at a 10 cap and uh, it, it has this dynamic of well it's a 10 cap today um, because you could look up and have uh, a rent decline uh, you know just population decline it especially happens in the oil markets I mean you, you see the booms and busts of the oil cycle and I'm not talking about Houston I'm talking about where they're drilling right uh, West Texas that uh, these guys can fill up uh, man camps you know little little mobile homes and, and generate all kinds of cash flow and they would happily sell a lot of those at a double digit cap rate because they know that it's not going to last forever yeah the, the, the bond is going to be due uh in fact yeah. there's a deal so right I, just, now. I see more people going to new geographic areas than than because all the product types that i see are, are pretty compressed in cap rate i mean yeah. self-storage industrial um even mobile home parks. I mean, everything you can think of is is a, a good uh, two, 3% lower cap rate than yeah. people think it should be. Yeah, and when I say better, I, I say, you know, slightly better. I'm saying kind of CB class, other product types. Uh, but again, if it's, you know, I just did a industrial, small industrial deal and, you know, it's a better cap rate, but, um, you know, also if, if the economy, goes crazy, um, you know, then, then that's a risk. To me, that's a riskier investment than the multifamily. At the end of right. the day, the thing about multifamily, somebody, you know, people always need a place to live. Uh, shelter is yeah. one of our basic needs. So um, as we get ready to, to, to wrap up, um, uh, um, what I was wondering, Waylon, is what do you, what do you like to invest in? What, what's, what's your, uh, what's your, uh, uh, portfolio, either portfolio or what are you, what are you interested in investing in? Yeah. So, um, right now, um, all, all I'm invested in are single family homes. I got into that, uh, a few years ago, uh, for a few reasons. It was just kind of easy to get into from a financing perspective, uh, from, 
just a dollar amount perspective, you know, you could come up with 20 or $25,000 and put it down on a, on a hundred thousand dollar house and you have a rent house. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, so that entry point was just a little less daunting than trying to take on a multifamily. Um, obviously I'm interested in multifamily. I've just never done it. I think the next step for me, um, is likely to invest passively in, in mm -hmm. multifamily partnerships. So, uh, there's a, a lot of groups that, that, um, do that around town that teach people to, to raise money, to invest in multifamily. And, and with my full-time job, you know, I work so much that I just, uh, I really can't take my eye off of that and spend the time that it takes to, to become a good operator of multifamily. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's, that's a, a art. It's a craft that, that guys really need to, to take not full-time. I mean, some guys can do it, but it, it, it takes a, a just lot, a lot man. to, to get to lot. that point. And so I'd rather just, find those guys and, and trust my money with those guys and then try to figure it out myself. And, and maybe I get to the point after I see kind of behind the curtains, everything they're doing, then I might get to the point where I, I do one of those partnerships. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, uh, Waylon, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they find you? What's your home address and uh, home phone number? <laughs> <I'm just> uh, <laughs> <laughs> how do they find you if they want to get financed? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I will give my cell phone. That's the easiest way to, <laughs> to uh, reach me. And I get enough robocalls anyway. I don't think it's any secret That's anymore. True. Uh, so my, my cell phone is 469-474-9089. Repeat one more time. It's 469-474-9089. As, as Kevin said, I, I am in Dallas now. I was in Houston for five years and uh, grew up in the Dallas area, so I'm back in Dallas. Uh, so that's a Dallas area code. You Houston folks, don't don't hold it against me. Uh, He's also a Cowboys fan, and don't hold that against him. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but I love I love both cities. Uh, I love all of Texas. Um, and then my email address is w t h e m e r at c i t y dot b a n k and and the b a n k that's our domain uh, a lot of banks are switching to that domain it's a more secure domain for the banking industry so it's w teamer at city dot bank is my email address and as always um uh, everyone that listens or watches the video um you can always contact me um if uh, you didn't get that uh and i can forward uh wayland's information Waylon, I appreciate you, man. I, I really do. Uh, uh, this is yeah. a good Friday. Uh, Waylon in there, like all of us in there, you know, we 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 making those calls, we following up on those deals. That's that's how you know you're dealing with two top producers. You know what I'm <laughs> that's how we do it. Uh, even though he doesn't get technically off, but uh, uh, and I don't technically get off as well. So I appreciate you uh, uh, on last minute notice. People know how I am. I, I usually like, oh, you know what? I want to talk to Waylon. Can you be on tomorrow? Um, the day beforehand so I appreciate you uh, making time for me yeah well I appreciate you having me on and, and you have a, a blessed Easter weekend and I'll talk to you soon alright all right, guys thank you again for listening to The Real Estate of Life with Kevin Riles and I will see you next week do you have questions about any of the topics I'm talking about if you have questions let me know Email me at Kevin at KevinRiles.com. Again, that's Kevin at KevinRiles.com. I'm going to do a podcast just on the questions uh, that you guys are sending to me. So feel free to send them to me. Again, that's Kevin at KevinRiles.com.